Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 70. Today's episode is all about what shared journeys to the afterlife can teach us about dying well and living better. When people are on their deathbeds and there's nothing else to strive for, it seems like what remains is this real, genuine, what I would call agape type of love, that just love for the gift of life, love for love itself, if you will. Just, yeah, the gift of being. So when you're at that, when you can get to that point of saying, thank you, I love you, and then acknowledging that death is happening or going to happen, and that's you can say goodbye. I want to let you know that I know that you're dying or that I'm dying. I want to thank you for the life we've had. I want to let you know that I know I'll be leaving soon and I want to say goodbye to you. Uh, Free of clinging to this life, free of clinging to the person who's dying. Those three characteristics, then you set out this beautiful landscape that emerges quite naturally. Question for you. Well, actually, a bunch of questions for you. What is your relationship to death? Are you afraid of it? At peace with it? Does your answer change when you consider your own death versus the death of a loved one? What do you believe happens after we die? Or what about at that moment in time when someone crosses over? And if you're with someone at the time that they cross over, are you able to sense the portal opening? Or what about if you're just emotionally close with someone who crosses over rather than physically close? Is it possible in that case to get a sense that they've passed? There are countless stories about this. So is there any truth to those stories? Death is clouded in mystery for most of us, probably because most people who have experienced it aren't alive to tell us about it. There are people that have died and come back to life or had a near-death experience, and many of their stories are very similar. So why? Is the white light that people claim to see actually the portal to the other side? Is it heaven? Or is that just the visual experience that occurs when their brain shuts down? That last question has always caused a little bit of doubt in my mind. It reminds me of plant medicine. I have had some really profound experiences with ayahuasca and DMT. And when I've come out of those experiences, it feels life-changing, like I've been awakened to realizations that could have taken lifetimes. It feels like I've actually experienced another dimension, like my soul has left my body and earth school, and I'm remembering who I've always been. Can I know for sure that I've crossed to the other side of something? Or is my brain reacting to chemicals and just altering my perceptions? creating a perceived experience. And maybe something similar happens in your brain right around the time you die. It's thought that the brain actually makes DMT, so that could make sense. A lot of people think it's a fact that your brain makes DMT, but we only actually know this to be a fact in rats. It's just assumed that human brains make DMT as well. So it's very possible that right before you die, you have a psychedelic experience. But today, we're going to talk about something that really puts a thorn in that theory and makes this existence of ours really interesting. Many people that work in hospice or alongside the dying have reported actually sharing this near-death experience with someone as they've crossed over. And some have even had an experience on their own as a loved one passed away in a totally different location. Wild, right? We might not fully understand what is happening or how it's happening, 
yet at least. But we can always seek to understand why. To find the meaning behind any experience we either have ourselves or we become aware of. So that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is William Peters. He is an end-of-life therapist. In 2000, he was volunteering at the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco when he had an extraordinary experience as he was reading aloud to a patient. He suddenly felt himself floating in midair, completely out of his body. The patient, who was floating beside him, looked at him and just smiled. And the next moment, Peters felt himself return to his body, but the patient never regained consciousness and died. Well, William was so stunned by what had happened that he began searching for other people who shared similar experiences and then spent the next 20 years gathering their stories to identify key patterns and features of what is now known as the shared crossing experience. So today we're going to learn more than three key things, but I'm going to name four. Four key things we will learn are what can explain these shared death experiences, how we can increase our likelihood of having one, what these experiences tell us about what lies beyond, and most importantly, how can they help take away the sting of death and better prepare us for our own final moments? But before we get started, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you get a little bite-sized way to transform your life. Think of it like a short note from your higher self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome William Peters to the show. Thank you for having me, Melissa. I appreciate being here. So I'm actually going to start off with your own question. What brings you here? And by that, I mean, what brought you to exploring just how the living can accompany the dying on their journey to the afterlife? You know, really, as I, I mean, I have a whole story, my own personal journey that, that got me to this place. But if I were to answer the question just directly, at this point, my real mission and goal is to inform people or raise awareness that there are these experiences that happen at the end of the life that are little known in our culture for a lot of reasons, but they're the most you know, mystical, transcendental, loving, life-affirming experiences. And they happen right in the time when we're losing someone we love. So the juxtaposition of those two, like, what most people in our research would describe as the most sublime, loving, mystical experience they've ever had 
at the same time as they're losing someone who, to whom they're very close to and the loss is enormous. So I really want to bring into the view for the public that this is a reality that happens for a lot of people around death and dying, and it's not getting the attention that it deserves. Uh, and, and in doing that, uh, this, this has the potential, and we've seen this in the research as well, of changing people and hopefully our culture's relationship to death and dying. Because right now we have a real unfortunate uh, negative approach or perception of what death and dying is. I totally agree. I feel like the deeper I've gotten in my spiritual journey, the more my relationship with death has changed overall. But I'm curious about the personal story that you briefly mentioned. Okay. Yeah. So when I look at how I got here, it goes back to I was 17 years old on a ski trip with some friends in Lake Tahoe and just skiing down the mountain, picked up some speed as you do at 17 years old. I caught an edge when flying into the air. And when I landed, uh, my ski bindings did not release and I broke my back. And that moment I was catapulted out of my body. Everything went dark. I felt a crunch and I knew something horrible had just happened. I just didn't know what, but I left my body. I sailed through a beautiful universe. I could see planet Earth down below. It was like looking back at Earth from those satellite pictures you see. And I was completely at peace, very comfortable, but I knew as soon as I saw this beautiful light that, oh, I'm dying, I've been here before. And that did not feel right to me at all. In fact, at that point, I started pleading with that light to come back. I said, I wanna go back. I haven't finished what I, what I came to this life to do. I went right into the thick of that light and felt the warmth and felt the, wow, just it's so awe-inspiring. It was just incredible, but I still wanted to go back. And so I felt a push away from that light. And at the same time I heard, make something of your life. And I circled kind of back all the way. As I remember looking back at the earth as I was heading back to it, I thought to myself, how am I gonna get back there? And it just happened. I just kind of energetically just, it just, I, I picked, I learned pretty quickly. Oh, this, I don't have to do anything. This is, this is going to happen. So we came back, came to in the snow, covered in snow. And I was very severely injured. I mean, it, I did ski down the mountain, which sounds crazy now, but I was 17 and all the adrenaline was pumping through my body. But that was the first experience. That was a near-death experience, a pretty classical near-death experience. I didn't speak about it at all for, I think, a decade. And I ended up uh, working in San Francisco during which was the late 80s, early 90s as a social worker during the AIDS epidemic. And I was hired because I was fluent in Spanish, but the AIDS epidemic basically exploded while I was working there. And so I ended up being at the bedside and supporting a lot of gay men who were dying of the HIV virus at a time when the disease was not understood at all. And because of that, I heard a lot about these experiences. Uh, a pe- you know, my, people would come in who had just been at the death of, a, usually of a, they'd say a death of, the, of a brother because the community was very tight with uh, the people helping these primarily gay men dying of AIDS. And I would hear them 
tell these stories. And they would look at me as a you know mental health professional saying, is this normal? Is this right? And I, because of my near-death experience while in the ski accident, I just, I just naturally said, well, I've had something similar. I don't know if you even said that, but I felt that. I go, oh yeah, I, I kind of know that. So if you fast forward a bit, I ended up working in Zen Hospice and I was really there because I was fascinated wanted to explore more about death and dying. And I like being with, I mean, I really liked being with people when they're at the end of life. It's a very tender, vulnerable, and as I've already explained, mystical uh, state, uh, you know, mystical, a lot of mystical experiences. And I really find that death helps me, and I know other colleagues say the same thing, it helps us look at life uh, anew. After every shift I worked at Zen Hospice, I would walk out and the world looked brighter. It looked more alive and, and I had a gratitude for life. So I thank uh, my experiences with the dying for that mindset. And while I was at the Zen Hospice, I had a number of experiences. One I'll share briefly, which is uh, I was with Ron and he was very close to the end of life. And he was a merchant Marine, so he loved adventure stories. And I was reading him an adventure story, actually it was Jack London, Call the Wild. And as I'm reading to him, I pop out of my body and I'm suspended above my body and Ron's body, who's in bed, laying prone, and he was unresponsive. So when I was reading to him, he was eyes closed, low, you know, kind of very faint heartbeat, sleeping essentially. But there is Ron with me suspended above our physical bodies and he's looking right at me and communicating, not in words, just kind of telepathically, check this out, look where we are, look where I am. And he was at peace, he was happy, he was actually kind of playing with me a little bit, like, because he knew I was like a little bit shocked. So those are some of my early experiences that got me into this. Um, I will say that even though I had these experiences, there was no term for these types of experiences until I met Raymond Moody in 2009. And he described the shared death experience. The shared death experience is this, this experience where somebody dies and a loved one, caregiver or bystander expresses that they shared in the transition and into the initial stages of the afterlife. And that the afterlife and that most of this journey, if you will, is benevolent. It's, it's a real mystical, profound experience. With that, I told Raymond right there that I'd had these experiences and I wanted to research them and share this more with the world because here I had been in this field and I was a psychotherapist at that time for when I met Raymond, I was already a psychotherapist working in, you know, in large part and end of life for almost a decade. And no one, you talk about these experiences, but no one had terminology for them. And a lot of people wouldn't even talk about them. Uh, certainly medical professionals uh, have, have historically looked at these a bit askance because they can't really explain them. It doesn't fit the mind-body relationship that they they believe that consciousness create consciousness is created by the brain. So when the brain dies, these types of experiences can't happen. Long story short, I started the Shared Crossing Project, really in large part because Raymond was so affirmative 
and have developed the, well, I would say probably the, the most uh, efficacious research institute called the Share Crossing Research Initiative. And we are the leading researchers on the share death experience. And we've published in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, have a, another article coming out, uh, an Omega Death Journal. These are two of the leading journals in this field. So this is, we're really getting the attention now. It's taken a while, but now the medical profession and the academics are saying, okay, uh, this, is, this is something we need to look at. I actually had an experience when my dad died and I was not near him at the time, but I had this dream that I didn't realize was a dream, but a phone rang on my nightstand. And the only reason that I even realized this was a dream is because it was like this big red phone that was a landline that I did not own. (laughs) But I just like answered the phone and it was my dad. And he was just like, I need to tell you that I'm okay. And I'm like, what do you mean? And uh, that was really all the dream was. But then when I woke up, I woke up to my mom calling me uh, on my cell phone, which was the only phone I had. And she said that my dad had passed. Would that be considered a shared death experience? Absolutely. That is a beautiful experience, Melissa. And I would imagine that when you share that with most people, that they kind of look at you a bit um, like, does she really believe she got a phone call from her father? Now, maybe you have really open-minded friends, but we get this exact experience in our research. And when people share it, they're so concerned that even us as researchers into this are going to look at them like they're crazy. But the fact of the matter is these happen. And telephone is something that we've seen, you know, not a lot, but certainly a few times. I can, you know, I don't know how many, but I certainly remember three or four cases right now as you're talking. And it's profound. I don't need to tell you. Yeah, it definitely, uh, it threw me for a loop at the time. At at that time I was, um, I had totally different beliefs than I do now. And I was mostly overtaken by the grief of it all. So I didn't have that much time to really reflect on it. But especially as my spiritual growth has, uh, or my spiritual journey has continued to develop, I have reflected on that so much more over the years. But I did share with people back in the day. And yeah, you're right. They just kind of passed it off like, oh, there's Melissa (laughs) in her head again. But what are some of the characteristics of a shared death experience for people that may think they might have had one but aren't so sure? Yeah. So let me give a bit of a a typology here that gives a map for the shared death experience. Uh, And you brought up a, a great point. And that is that you had a remote shared death experience. In other words, you weren't at your father's bedside and he still, as we say, kind of got to you um, to let you know that he was dying or that he had died. And that I'm going to ask you this. Did you have a sense that he was okay and well? Yeah, he he was good. And I think maybe that's why he said, I'm okay, was because at the time I was trying to figure out what I even believed about the afterlife. I was raised religious and I ended up kind of evolving to a broader spirituality. And during that transition time of sort of leaving the religion I was raised in, I went through a phase of being like, there's absolutely no God. And so if there's no God, then there's no afterlife. And at the time, I think that it bothered me even more that my dad was dying because 
once at least before I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I gave this up for a reason, but now where's my hope when I at least could be like, oh, my dad's in heaven. And now I'm like, now what is he buried? Like, <laughs> is there nothing? Is he okay? And, and so he, he came to me in a dream, another dream too. And it was a weird dream. I was hosing down the lawn and he showed up and I knew he was dead in my dream this time. It was like a month later. And he was just like, you need to know that I'm okay. You need to know that I'm okay. And I just started bawling. And I was like, you're not supposed to be here. I thought you were dead. Can we hug? And I kept trying to hug him and I couldn't hug him. And then I woke up and I was like crying hysterically in my sleep. So those were the two, um, sort of connections I had with my dad following his passing. But I think he was sending me the message that I needed to hear at the moment. Yeah, I, I, you said it really well when, I'm, if I'm hearing this correctly, that he was telling you, reaching out to you to tell you that he was okay. And yes. that's what we hear in from near death, excuse me, share death experiencers is that, yeah, it was like, you know, the, my loved one who was dying or transitioning or was trying to let me know that he was okay or she was okay. So yeah, you you fit. Well, one of the things, just before I go back to the shared death experience, that experience you had a little bit later where he visited you, you said in a dream, that is what we call a post-death visitation. And that's another end of life phenomena that we study as well. And those are quite profound because oftentimes they help people who are grieving realize that their departed loved one is indeed alive and well somewhere. And that's affirming and comforting. It doesn't take away the pain of the loss, but it's it contextualizes the loss in a way that would certainly answer the question you were posing, which is, is there an afterlife? Most of our experiencers, and I dare say all but a very small percentage, would say these experiences affirm for them the sense that we continue on beyond this human life into a benevolent afterlife. I'm not a fan of the term afterlife because it assumes, you know, life in my mind, the way I work with it, life just continues. There's human death, but life continues. So that term afterlife, I think life is the substrate of existence, if you will. So the term is a bit problematic. But let me go back to the shared death experience and answer your question directly. So we have two basic types, bedside and remote. So the bedside is obvious. You're at the bedside of someone dying and you have the shared death experience. Remote is you're not at the bedside. You can be anywhere. You can be down the hall. You can be the other side of the globe. Doesn't make a difference. And two thirds, but 64% of our now over 225 uh, deeply analyzed accounts are remote. So that is the more common one. In addition to those two features we see, those two distinguishing types, you can also have what we call a uh, early, gradual, and delayed SDE. So, uh, you know, an hour, a few hours before, sometimes a couple days before, and also a few hours after, and even a couple days after. And the reason why we know those are SDEs is because of the pattern. There's a particular pattern, I'll go into that next. And the other thing to know about a shared death experience, which I just, you know, I just gave the acronym, which we use more commonly, SDE, that you can also have multiple person SDE. So you can, if there are a number of people at the bedside, they can share in this experience as well. And they can have similar experiences or they can have different experiences. And you can have someone remote having an SDE and someone at bedside having the SDE. So there's a 
a great deal of uh, options here for shared death experiencers. But the most common features we see are you see the dying in some form. 51% of our research candidates will tell us that they saw the dying. Also, 16% will say that they saw an elevated, I call it an elevated being, a non-human being, but some sort of uh, higher consciousness being. And I'll talk a bit about that in a second. But 13% will see deceased relatives. So grandmothers, you know, deceased uncles, aunts, what have you. And, and friends, best friends will appear. But mostly they tend to be family members and mostly very close family members. So those are the most common features we see. We also see the light. This is also a feature in the, in the near-death experience. And I should point out that really those of us who study near-death experiences and share-death experiences see the experiences having the same uh, possible phenomena, which is a, a wide range of phenomena, all in this realm of kind of mystical, highly energetic. But every NDE, like every SDE, is completely unique. So the other features you might see, uh, you'll see people report their energy is, feels, you know, heightened sense of energy, uh, electricity in their body, different colors, things being hyper real. Those are some of the things that we tend to see. And one of the main questions I ask when I am interviewing people to make sure it's an SDE is that they, there's a journey motif. The SDE, what we learn is that the experiencer reports that their loved one is on a journey, a journey from this human life to what lies beyond. And what lies beyond in almost every one of our cases with a handful of only just a few uh, is a very benevolent, kind, compassionate and wise realm. And why we say that is because so many experiencers will say to us, while I was there, I understood everything. I, I felt one with everything. I, I felt like uh, things that, that were painful and confusing and overwhelming while I was in my human body just made sense while I was in that shared death experience. And the final thing I'll say is that the feelings, uh, the feeling tone for the shared death experience is one of it's one of love, sub, sublime feelings, the best feelings that people have ever experienced. We hear that all the time. I don't have the words to explain the marvelous, wonderful, full body, sublime feelings of joy, of love, of contentment, absence of pain. So, yeah, that's kind of the main those are the main characteristics we see in it. I've actually felt that oneness and that like ability to understand everything on plant medicine. And I know that people say it's very similar to a near-death experience or maybe even a shared death experience. But of course, that's manufactured. And I believe that those plants are kind of there to remind us and, and that show us that there's a way to feel in general that doesn't need to be manufactured. But that that makes me question, some people do uh, are able to be with their loved ones dying on their bedside and they don't necessarily have a shared death experience. Do you know why some people do and why some people don't? And are there things that you can do in order to encourage a shared death experience or so to speak? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot mindlove. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you know why some people do and why some people don't? And are there things that you can do in order to encourage a shared death experience or so to speak? Great question. And I will tell you humbly when I first talked to Raymond Moody about this, because he was, as I said earlier, one of the, he was really the person who coined the term shared death experience and brought it to our attention in the West. I said to him, I think I know how to enable these experiences for people. And his eyes opened up and said, we don't even know why they happen, let alone how you could make them happen, (laughs) how you could facilitate them for people. Well, I developed a training program around this initially, and I was testing the the efficacy of of our protocols to facilitate SDEs between loved ones. Of course, the the inhibiting factor in this research was that you, people had to die and you know they they weren't dying at a way at a rate that we could actually um, track the data now this is this is now almost 10 years ago so we have a lot more data 
but we're on to other forms of study and uh, the SDE. But I still will say that to answer your question directly, we don't know why these experiences happen, but we do know that when people work to have what I call a conscious, connected, and loving end-of-life experience, we seem to see, this is all anecdotal, but I would say about 50% of the people that I've worked with and trained, there are some protocols, I'll go to that in a second, but when people are able to say to their loved ones, to each other, both the caregiver and the one dying, thank you, thank you for the life we've shared together. I love you. I appreciate everything we've had. That doesn't mean you had a perfect relationship. It means that in that moment, it's like, you know, I, you come to peace in that sense of you work everything else out. In my experience, love is what remains. Now you have to work hard at that. You have to do a lot of forgiveness and work with regrets because that's just part of life. But once you get there, when people are on their deathbeds and there's nothing else to strive for, it seems like what remains is this real genuine, what I would call agape type of love, that just love for the gift of life, love for love itself, if you will, just, yeah, the gift of being. And, and it's a general well uh, wishing of well being for everybody. So when you're at that, when you can get to that point of saying, thank you, I love you, and then acknowledging that death is happening or going to happen, and that's you can say goodbye. I want to let you know that I know that you're dying or that I'm dying. I want to thank you for the life we've had. I want to let you know that I know I'll be leaving soon, and I want to say goodbye to you. Those three characteristics, and included in that is is a, you know that kind of working through the forgiveness and the regrets and kind of dealing with unfinished business. That's all part of the first two things saying thank you and I love you. You got to get there, you've got to do that, you know, what I call psycho-emotional spiritual work. But when you can say goodbye and you can be uh, free of clinging to this life, free of clinging to the person who's dying, then you set out this beautiful landscape that emerges quite naturally. So that work, that's the work I call about getting, you know, conscious and connected to your loved one as they're dying. And then some of the things that we teach in my workshops are we know that crossing the threshold, as I'm saying that I'm realizing, okay, probably not everyone knows about that. But once again, I've had numerous, I've had two near death experiences. One I share with you and probably a couple dozen shared death experiences. So I know this terrain pretty well, and it's mostly an energetic terrain, but it has visual in it as well. But what we know is that the leaving, dropping the body and going into that disincarnate realm that comes next, it's it's quite a, it's quite a strong energetic crossing over. And so what you need to do is when you cross over, it really helps to have cued yourself in a certain way that when you get over there and your kind of consciousness settles out, you are you have some cues in your mind. This is not in your brain, this is in your mind that reminds you once you realize, oh, I've dropped my body. Oh, I'm over here now. This is another dimension. And you have the the kind of the reminder in you. And we work to kind of log that in, practice that embedding of this, that you now have the capacity to turn and call to your now you know surviving loved one and that's that 
we find that those, you know, it's a much more complicated than I'm explaining here, but that tends to work in about 50% of the time. So if you look at, just to look at the data here, we know that near-death experiences, according to probably one of the leading scholars, Bruce Grayson, says about 5% of the American public will have that. And to think that the shared death experience and the people that, you know, once again, anecdotally, I'm thinking it's it's upwards of 50%. That's what we do. That's kind of the training right there. Now, I'll say something else. At the most basic level, when we look at the people who have the shared death experience naturally with really no training whatsoever, what we see is people tend to be in flow states. When I say flow states, that's either they were meditating, doing some sort of habitual, non-brain demanding activity. No, no cognitive load is put on them. So that could be driving a car, especially if you're in the passenger seat. We've got a large number of people who have SDEs while, in the, while they're in the passenger seat of a car. It could be, we even have some that were shopping, which is Sounds like it could be a rather mindless activity, mindless in a positive way. They're kind of, they're doing something, they're just looking through things, they do it all the time, and somehow their mind is open and receptive. The most common one we see is one that you've already shared with us, Melissa, is you're in a sleep state, highly receptive. I don't really like the term dream state because dreaming is something different than being in a sleep state. And the SDE doesn't take you into a dream state. It takes you into another dimension that is not a dream. In fact, the data uh, suggests that people say, no, it wasn't a dream. It was more real than real. It was more real than my typical dreams. My typical dreams are a bit fragmented and you know they're, they have kind of strange people or experiences that don't typically go together in my normal waking life. The, these states are very coherent. They're very clear. In fact, we hear more real than real. So those are some of the things. So I highly suggest people embark on mindfulness practices. Of, of, there are various types for that because I think that keeps allows for the mind to be receptive and supple and attuned. So attunement is the operative term when we're working with on the caregiver side. So if you're the surviving loved one, I train people how to be attuned. And it's really just deep practice, you know, and I say deep, it's not so much deep as it is disciplined, regular attunement to whatever arises in you and a sensitivity if you are at the bedside for some of these heightened energetic responses or sounds in your ears like and you'll notice this is, these are signs that your energy that the energy is changing and that that energetic wavelength if you will may be a doorway into another dimension so i've said a lot there and excuse me if i said too much but it's it's a really perhaps for most people your listeners they want to know well how what how do you make these happen and i told you a bit about what we've learned. That makes complete sense to me because it reminds me of kind of the way energy works where, you know, like energy attracts like energy. And if somebody is transcending the human body and going to their soul level where there is no pain, there is no judgment, it's they're kind of being one with the love. Then if you are on a total different energetic realm and you're so consumed with your negativity or the narrative that is playing in your mind, then you're not going to be able to access that 
sort of dimension. I think you said it quite well. And that's why I began saying that it really begins with doing the psycho-emotional spiritual work of reviewing your life, looking at your regrets, interpersonal unfinished business. That's the foundation. Once you work that, that's like doing, taking care of business in this human realm with your relationships, with your own. We all have regrets. We just have to work through them. And then you're at a state where you can focus on saying goodbye, accepting your death, and you cleared the energetic pathway. There's not the heavy energy, if you will, of being, you know, your mind and soul and, you know, being as we say, cathected on the material realm. Once you've given that up, worked it through, now you are ready to elevate your soul and spirit. And I will say, I I think, I always say the language of the soul is emotion, but emotion has such a high energetic quality to it. So when you're in your peak emotions, the most sublime, I mean, this is, you know, there is that whole hierarchy of experience and I think Abraham Maslow came up with that. And it talks about these peak experiences where you people will say it's like they're in a blissed out state, but it, they'll also say, it's like I was living in a different part of myself, the highest higher self. So, and if you go just above that, if you don't have a physical weight of a body here, well, I think that's what just awaits all of us at the end of a human life. I'm also reminded of, I was trying to study lucid dreaming for a while. And I actually got myself to the point of lucid dreaming, and then I moved on to the next hobby. <laughs> but the, but part of the practice is to actually do things in your waking life so that you're more likely to do them when you're in your dream state, and it will act as a trigger to remind yourself, hey, I'm dreaming right now. And so there's little things like in lucid dreaming, I'm sure it's totally different than a shared death experience, but in lucid dreaming, like one of the things is whenever you turn on the light, like flicker it a few times so that if you end up turning on the light in your dream, you'll like be reminded of your new habit or like actually ask yourself a bunch of times, am I dreaming right now in your waking life? So it becomes a habit. And then you might ask yourself that in your dreaming life. And that's what happened to me. I was doing something odd. And uh, one of the things was to question things more often when they're strange. And (laughs) for some reason I was rubbing like Play-Doh on my toes, which is weird. I've never dreamed that in my life except for this one time. And I was like, what am I doing? Oh my gosh, this is a dream. Am I dreaming? And then all of a sudden I was lucid dreaming and I was able to have more control of it. But that kind of sounds like what you're talking about where you have these little cues for yourself in your living life so that when you are transitioning over, that cue might kind of snap you into, oh my gosh, I'm. this is my transition. Let me bring awareness. I think you're right. Yes. Well, we do a couple things. One is we set up uh, contracts with people between, I mean, contracts. I actually call them covenants. Contract sounds a little too legal, businessy, but covenants where someone will will say, you know, after, say, take a couple or something. Let's just say that the couple always did a ritual together, whether it was make coffee or go for a walk or do some activity. They make an agreement that you, when you cross over, the dying will come to them in that activity and do this, that, and the other thing. And usually it has to be identified by a more extreme behavior. So in other words, so the person crosses over and all of a sudden 
they they're doing this. Let's say the husband dies and the woman is continuing with their morning walk routine. Well, he will she will stop at a place, say, this is where I'm going to stop and I'm waiting for you. So she'd say she stops. She sits on a bench. She looks at the same place every day and they made an agreement while I'm here. I'm going to sit in this bench. You send me something that I could not expect or we've never seen together. Well, and a lot of times they'll try and say, I'll send, you know, a bird or do something. You know, it's kind of hard. People have come up with different ones. But what often happens is this. The woman's sitting there and she's, let's say she's sitting, this happens. I live in Santa Barbara, so we're on the ocean. She's sitting on this bench overlooking the uh, ocean. And all of a sudden, all these dolphins start jumping up. Well, she's been at, on this walk, sitting on that bench many times, and she's never seen this many dolphins. She's naturally going to say, oh, my gosh, I was looking for a sign, and this is it. This is that aberrant behavior, aberrant uh, phenomena that becomes what we call the synchronistic event that heightens the sense that their loved one is trying to communicate with them. Now, what's also interesting is if you ask them, what was it like, what were you experiencing in your body when you saw those dolphins jumping all around? What we often hear is, my body was lit up with all this energy, I was tingling, I was getting like a download. My, my you know, remember, my, I, my, as I said before, the emotions are the language of the soul. If they start feeling these really joys, bliss, happiness, contentment, all these wonderful feelings. That is, I think, the way that the deceased can communicate with us. Now, this is not a shared death experience, but this is a post-death visitation. Uh, but they're very similar. And in fact, this is why we study all of these different experiences. I will say of all the experiences, the shared death experience, it's the jewel experience because it's just so it pulls you fully into that other realm, the beyond or the afterlife. But we've said, I've said a lot here, but I, I think just what you're talking about here in terms of these rituals that can be interrupted in a certain way with highly unusual but profound phenomena really get the uh, surviving loved one to know that or in their way they use that language i know that was my departed loved one communicating with me i know that was him or her so so yes this is what we see in the literature and i have to you know how say when i started studying this the last thing i wanted to study is what we call these synchronistic events you know as my research team and i you know as we we kind of tongue-in-cheek talk about this. I mean, are we going to be studying butterflies and birds doing irregular formations and cloud people saying the clouds are making these formations and they're sim symbolically telling them something? I am now, we have so much data on this that it's hard to deny. And I would put it forth to any other researcher to disabuse me and my team of our belief that there's something quite significant happening quantitatively in our research, that this is just, it's too frequent to be, you know, a, a non-event. It's, it's an event. It is a synchronistic event that is aberrant. And aberrant meaning that not only is it not common, but it rises above the level of, to, of normalcy to naturally catch the attention of people that this is a significant event. And it likely has a cause um, from outside normal physics. Right. I actually interviewed somebody years ago that 
had did very similar work to you and he was not a believer in any of it at all. It was just that the data, because he worked at a hospice center, the data was too overwhelming and he kept hearing the same things that he had to reassess. And now he's, of course, a believer in these types of experiences. And it, I'm reminded when you talk about those little signs, uh, I read this book called Signs by Laura Lynn Jackson that was really great. And it's all about how the death can communicate with the living beyond their life. And, and there are these little signs. And, and she said just what you said about how you can kind of set up an agreement with a loved one before they pass so that you know what to look for. And that's been very uh, effective for the people that she's worked with. And I was reading this book and I was at Santa Monica Beach, sitting on a hammock at the beach. And, and I was thinking, man, I wish I knew any of this information before my dad passed. And I was like, we didn't, we never set up a sign. And immediately when I said this out loud to my husband, there was this little family band that would play every single Saturday and they would go through the exact same list of songs to where I knew every song that was going to play. And then all of a sudden they played two songs in a row that were very meaningful between me and my dad. And I was just, I just had chills all over my body. And then my programming kicks in and it's like, okay, but do I just really want this so badly that I'm like trying to find connections between things that aren't, aren't real? But it seems to be saying the way I had talked myself through it was whenever I get the chills or like bodily sensations, or like you said, emotions, I feel like that's the universe's sign that I'm on the right track, that this is something profound. And in that moment, I was just covered in chills. It was like my jaw was even quivering because I, I, was, I had the chills so deeply. You're describing the experience. Um, we often call that like those truth bumps or truth chills. It's just like it just goes full body, like you're sitting under a hot shower and the water hits your forehead for the first time and it just ripples down your body. And it's an aliveness, it's energetic. And yes, and, and it's your intuitive response, just as you said, this is, this is something and this is meaningful. And then the programming, that's your word, great word comes in and says, I, I, can't, I can't believe this. This is the rational mind says, come on. And yet as you're the, the person you refer to that you'd interviewed earlier, I'm with that person as well as I'm I'm a skeptic, but a skeptic in the true in the true form of a skeptic is going to be curious and is going to investigate. And as we have continued our research and examinations of these phenomena, they are. I mean, you can't deny that there's something going on here and. You know, and I think the other thing about it is it's so healing for the recipients, for the surviving loved ones to receive these experiences, like the experience you shared with your father. I mean, hearing the music, that means a lot to you, I would imagine. I mean, if you're like any of other participants, they're like, it, it means so much. I don't even have the words for it. I'm just taking a remembering a quote from somebody we interviewed just a few weeks ago who had an experience. And she says, I don't even have the words I, I don't like talking about it with my friends because I don't want anybody to tell me that this experience is not anything but 100% true. I know it's true. I don't want it to be tainted in any way. I know that was my mother coming to me and she was telling me that she's still alive and with me. That's hard to argue with. 
uh, with people that are, you know, we do when our, most of the people we interview, all of them actually are very sound in mind and health. And, uh, and I actually find that it's those who are really rational and really thoughtful and very clear headed when they have these experiences and we interview them, they're the ones who they don't so much struggle with it, but what they've done is they've thought so much about it that when they articulate the experience as best they can, there's a real vulnerability and innocence, but it speaks truth. And that is so powerful for us as interviewers and, and for the world to hear. And, you know, that's why I'm very moved by the, the book I, I'm, I've just written because it shares these stories in their words and really, really lets people hear you know, right from wonderful, ordinary people of all walks of life, what they experienced and why it was so profound to them. Well, thank you so much for all of the research that you've brought. This is, I think it's just so healing when you can have this type of experience at the end of a life, especially because not everyone has such a charmed relationship with those that are passing. And I have heard from people who feel like they've been able to heal an entire lifetime of struggles with a person just by being able to be there and have something like this at the end of their life. Or even if it's just like a few days to let go of all the baggage. And it sounds like that's actually exactly what's needed in order to be able to elevate to the level to have a shared death experience. So for the listeners that are resonating with you and wanting to learn more about all this, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? sharecrossing.com is where you can get to our website and learn all about you know our research the programs i would particularly invite your viewers to come to our shared crossing story library there you will see usually we have featured five of our interviewees sharing their experiences in three to five minute clips it gives you a really good idea for these experiences now they're only three to five minutes so that's different than, you know, in, in the book, I really go into much more detail about who they are, the, the relationships and what have you, and look at it almost from a psychotherapist's lens about the, the connection they have, so to speak. So, so yes, yeah, I would love invite your viewers. It would be really wonderful if they could come online. And we have more, you know, if they want to sign up to get on our email list to get information about other events and updates on research, that's, we welcome that as well. All the links to this episode are at mindlove.com slash x70. So your challenge for this week isn't really a challenge, it's more of a share. And you can do this in two different ways. First, I really want to hear any of your shared death experiences. Even if it's not necessarily shared, it's an experience that you have with something regarding the other side. Plant medicine, death of a loved one, communication with a loved one after they've passed. I want to know, and I'd love to share these with all of you so that you guys can see what everyone has been experiencing. So either reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa, or you can comment right on the page at mindlove.com slash x70. I'm going to be pushing people more towards these comments because I own that content and you just don't know what's going on with social media lately. I personally don't trust it very much. If you'd like more of a personal challenge rather than sharing this, I encourage you to journal your experience. What I found is that when I focus on journaling something, it brings more focus of that into my life. So I actually experience that more. 
I realized this actually when I was trying to learn how to lucid dream. One of the tips that they give you is to start writing down your dreams. And just by telling your mind that you're going to be writing these down, you start to remember your dreams more. So I encourage you to start writing down your other realm experiences as well. And maybe you'll start experiencing those more too. So let me know how it goes. For all of my premium members, thank you so much for all of your support. If you're not yet a premium member, you can join at mindlove.com slash premium. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time.